Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. We continue our Mark and Sermon series. We find ourselves today in the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. We will be observing the Lord's Supper, breaking the bread uh, in a couple of weeks on Good Friday and hope that you'll plan on joining us for that very sacred and, and holy service. It's our, our topic today, this morning, in Mark 14. Do you remember the first time you witnessed the Lord's Supper as a child? It all seems so strange, doesn't it? You watch in bewilderment as your parents take the tiniest of cracker imaginable while you yourself are forbidden from tasting the wafer. And then comes those cute little cups and they just look fun. And yet everybody seems so sad. This powerful meal, you, you realize even as a child, does not have the joy of Christmas, and it doesn't have the gratitude of a Thanksgiving feast. Nothing, it, the, the, the emotions are odd in this bite of bread and sip of juice supper, and the, the preacher's sermon about a broken body and shed blood sounds something like a Saturday morning sci-fi channel you're not supposed to watch. And you realize that something very powerful is going on, but, well, it seems super serious. Just like children of Christian families are puzzled by the observance of the Lord's Supper. The Jewish children were equally perplexed and bewildered by the observance of the Passover. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, we read in the Torah, You shall observe as an ordinance for you and your children forever. In fact, Exodus teaches us that part of the Passover meal is so the children will be prompted to ask questions and the fathers can answer those questions. It will come about when your children will say to you, what does this mean, this meal? Passover gave Jewish parents an opportunity to teach their children. As they asked about the various elements that were passed, the parents could explain. We were slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh was a terrible taskmaster, but God sent a deliverer, Moses, who commanded Egypt to be plagued by frogs and flies and blood and bulls. And Pharaoh still wouldn't listen to the Lord. The death angel came upon the land and killed the firstborn, the firstborn of the cattle and the firstborn of the sons. But the death angel passed over our houses because, well, the doors were marked with the precious spilt blood of the lamb. And today, they explained to their children, we have this Passover meal to remember all that God has done to deliver us. Well, why do we eat with our shoes on? And, and why do we tie our robes up really high? The children ask, why are we in such a hurry when we eat this meal? Our ancestors never knew when God was coming through with a death angel. And so they kept on their sandals and they tied their robes high and they ate in haste. And so we eat in a hurry like they did because they had to be ready. Whether it's the Passover meal or the Lord's Supper. 
They are both powerful symbols of God's redemption, liberation. And both involve the sacrifice of a lamb for the sake of God's people. When John the baptizer saw his cousin Jesus down by the river, he made the proclamation of identification. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, let's outline our passage. First of all, preparations for the Passover. 14, 12 through 16. Preparations for the Passover. Clearly. Mark presents the Lord's Supper as part of a Passover meal. To be precise, he says, the preparations occurred. Notice what he says. And on the first day of unleavened bread, verse 12, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Like countless others on that day, Jesus and the disciples prepared the lamb, drained the blood in the basin held by the priest, and the priest would take the blood and sprinkle it upon the altar like Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. Having the lamb ready, the disciples asked their rabbi, their master, where do you want us to go? It's crowded. It's the time of the feast. There's so many. Where do you want us to go? Where on earth are we going to find a place to have our Passover, they ask. Well, Jesus was ready for their question. It was once required that one actually celebrate the Passover meal in the temple precincts, but because of the growing and the large population, now the rule was anywhere within the, the city walls of Jerusalem would be appropriate to observe the Passover. But Jesus, knowing their question, says to them, look at verse 13, I want you to go to the city and a man will, well, you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Is this a miracle? Is it preparation by our Lord? One way or the other, it doesn't matter. You'll see a man carrying a jar of water. Now, you might say, it's festival time. How many men are going to be carrying jars of water? None but one. Women carried the jars of water, and men carried water in skins, and so it would stand out if you were looking for it, strangely enough, that here's a man carrying the water the woman's way. You see, it had to be done in secret. They were out already to kill Jesus, we know. Following the tossing of the tables in the temple, Mark warns his readers that they were afraid of him. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 18. 11:18 And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him for the, all the multitude was astonished at his teaching they are looking for a way to kill him back to chapter 14 but but look at 14:1 we we're told again now the passover and the unleavened bread was 2 days off and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth. And notice what they want to do with him. They want to kill him. The chapter begins by a reminder once again that the religious authorities want to kill the Messiah. And so 
watch for the man with the water jar and quietly follow him. They knew they were looking for this renegade rabbi, and it must all be done in secret. Keeping in nature with the clandestine arrangements, a password was needed to the owner of the home. You follow the man with a water jar, and then you ask the man of the home, the teacher says, 1414, where is my guest room in which I may have the Passover with my disciples? When you ask, where's the room, the man will wink and nod, and you know, and he'll answer, shh, this is the place prepared for the rabbi. Now, I'm not taking away from the preparations of Jesus or perhaps even the miraculous nature of the arrangements, but it was thought appropriate for the residents of Jerusalem to share their homes and provide a space for the pilgrims to come and do the Passover because, because there was no place for those who traveled to do so. Having followed this teacher throughout the gospel, none of us is surprised when we finally read in chapter 14 that they find everything, look at verse 16, exactly as he had told them. Just like Jesus said the plans would unfold, the man carrying the water jar, the homeowner saying this is the place, it was there already furnished, ready for the Passover Unless you thought it wasn't a Passover, at the end of verse 16, Mark reminds you again, they prepared the Passover there. The second portion of this text can be outlined this way, disciples in denial, 14, 7 through 21. Disciples in denial. The disciples are reclining and they're observing and eating the Passover when Jesus disturbs the disciples and delivers the bomb of the evening, the startling statement of the meal. Look at 14, 18. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good that, for that man if he had never been born. Without warning, they're eating the meal, and Jesus delivers this word of disappointment. All of a sudden, the atmosphere becomes rank with the reality that a traitor is in their midst. The betrayer, notice the stair step, is one who is eating with me. It is one of the twelve. It is the one with whom I break the bread. Stair step fashion, he narrows it down as to make no mistake that it was one of the twelve breaking the bread, dipping the bread, who is a betrayer. It reminds us, does it not, of the Psalter, Psalm 41, where the psalmist is surprised that his best friend, the one with him with whom he breaks the bread, has now become his traitor, his enemy. Echoing that song, Jesus says, one who breaks the bread with me 
like the psalmist, is now my enemy. Mark's reminding us that Jesus is in control. He is not surprised by his betrayer. When he's handed over, he's not caught unaware. Rather, he has predicted, like we saw last week, he's predicted every single detail of the crucifixion and even the resurrection, and the betrayal is no surprise to him. He labels it before it ever, ever happens. In fact, on three occasions now, Jesus has predicted all the unfolding of the events in 831 and 931 and 1032. I'm going to die and rise again. Breaking the bread together then is now was a sign that people were at peace together. And each disciple wants to be sure that it is not he. It's not I, is it, Lord? You're not talking about me, are you? I'm not the one. Assure me, Lord, that, that I'm not the one who would turn you in. It's not I, is it, Lord? One by one, they wanted to hear him say, no, no. It's not you. Now, the disciples are shocked. It's a clear recognition that they had no idea that there was a traitor in their midst, and that traitor was a trusted treasurer, the keeper of the bag. Mark makes it clear earlier. Look at 14.10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at the opportune time. Judas had already made the arrangements. Matthew wants you to be sure and know that Judas also says, It's not I, is it, Lord? He asked the same question of the others. And John wants you to know that Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas as a sign. Oh, yes, you are. He concludes this section in 1421 by telling us the fate of the Son of Man will be the fulfillment of the Scriptures. That Jesus is willing to follow the path that God has laid before him, the prophet Zechariah and others. Well, the third section breaking the bread, breaking the bread. Jesus takes the bread and the wine, two elements from the Passover meal, and gives them new symbols, new meaning in the midst of the meal, all about redemption. Think of it this way. When Jesus breaks the bread, it's an acting out of prophecy. It's like Isaiah who runs around with bare feet. It's like Jeremiah who bursts the pot asunder or walks around in the yoke. There's sometimes when a prophet begins the reality and the fulfillment by acting out the initial step. When Jesus breaks that bread, he sets in motion his crucifixion in such a way that it cannot and it will not be stopped. The prophet acts out the prophecy itself. He offers the bread and tells them, take, this is my body. 
Next, he, he picks up the cup after offering the bread. He gives it them, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Don't forget that Jesus had already told James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that they would drink the cup which he drinks, and now they do, and a fuller fulfillment they will as well. It reminds us of Exodus 24 when Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. The cup is a new covenant. It's another covenant-making event. It is real redemption for the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of lamb and goats can never accomplish the forgiveness of sins, but only the blood of the real lamb. The blood of Jesus. When the Passover meal was observed, the elements came by and the children asked the question. They ate these bitter herbs. They said, why are we eating these bitter herbs? And they would tell the children where our slavery was a bitter time and we eat the, the bitter herbs. And then they would have the stewed fruit, which had the consistency and the color of clay. And it reminded them that they were slaves who made brick, even brick without straw. And then finally, the Passover lamb reminded them that the death angel passed over because the lamb had been sacrificed. In the same way, the Lord's Supper, the bread is broken, the cup is taken, the blood is spilled. But take note, take note of the joy. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I shall never drink again of the fruit of the vine of the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. Death, duplicity, desertion, are all in the air, and despite the death and the duplicity and the desertion that are in that room, it ends in a moment of joy when Jesus says, I will drink the cup again, but when I do it with you, I will be in the everlasting kingdom of God. And they sang a hymn, and they went out. Maybe it was Psalm 106, 136. Maybe it's Psalm 113 or, or anywhere from 113 to 118. The Jewish scholars tell us the most likely words they sang were these from 136. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. With strong and outstretched arm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the sea asunder, for his loving kindness is everlasting. After the Passover meal, some said they would stay for hours and talk about God's hope for the future. God redeemed in the past, but God will also redeem in the future. And after this Passover meal with the disciples, they hang around and they sing the Psalms and they speak of God's redemption. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had often retreated to teach his disciples. Well, the fourth and the last section, sheep without a shepherd, 27 through 31. Sheep without a shepherd. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away 
Now, I want you to notice the inclusive nature of the description. You will all fall away. One might betray, but all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Even on this saddest of all occasions, the reminder of the broken body, the foreboding cross, the acted out prophecy before them, Jesus already has his eyes on the resurrection. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you remember in an earlier sermon when they were entering Jerusalem that Jesus went before them, the rabbi in the front and the pupils behind, whatever came at Jerusalem, he wanted to face it first. And now, he says, I will go before you after the resurrection. Peter said to him, even though Peter's still thinking about the word all, even though everybody else may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that you yourself, you yourself, this very night before the cock crows twice will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. Jesus Mark wants you to know yet again is not caught unaware by the events before him. He knows that they're all going to desert him and flee. He says, like a shepherd is struck down, the sheep flee. When I am crucified, you will run, but I will go before you in the Galilee. Peter's so sure Lord, they may, they may all fall away, but you can count on me. Everybody else can't speak for them, but I know myself, and I know when they come for you, I'll be ready. I'll stay by your side. Knowing all things, the Lord says, Peter, before the cock crows twice, Thrice you will, you will deny me. I'll die if I have to, Lord. I'm telling you, whatever the others do, I'll, I'll die. And they all kept saying the same thing. Look over at verse 50. Fourteen fifty. And they all left him and fled. How many did he say would deny him? All. How many did? All. And they all left him and fled. All. Here's Jesus in the upper room, setting into acted prophecy the most humble and giving event in human history. Breaking the bread, taking the cup, the blood of the new covenant, 
beginning already in symbol the process that surely will come about in the crucifixion. And in the midst of the greatest act of giving and humility and suffering and sacrifice, when a man embodies the lamb who's put on the door, disciples are still thinking about themselves. Not me. Not I. Lord, you, you can count on me. I'll die for you. We're approaching the holy season, and Jesus is breaking bread again and holding up the chalice again. What's on your mind? What's in your heart? But don't lose hope. He shall go before them into Galilee. Resurrection. Let us pray. Well, God, what started out to be another Passover observance by a rabbi and his disciples turned out to be the pivotal point in human history when God himself dies for his creation. We see this text and we're disgusted by the disciples and then we They're looking at our own hearts for a moment this morning, and we know it's all the worse within us. Forgive us for our thoughts at the holy table. Forgive us for our false courage, our pride, our self-centeredness. May we approach the holy season as broken men and women giving thanks and glorifying God for the gift unspeakable. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.